Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Open your Bibles. You all have Bibles? If you don't have a Bible, there's some extra on the shelf. Um, We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, and we'll pick up there as we distribute Bibles and get them to everyone. Uh, we, we actually read the Bible here, and we'll, we'll go through it. So if you weren't here last week, we were in 1 Peter chapter 1, and this week we're going to pick up in chapter 2. But we actually got into chapter 2, so we're going to start at verse 13. Uh, it reads, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Context. Um, in the letter of 1 Peter, Peter's writing a letter to all of those Christians that are following the way. And a number of those Christians are Gentiles. So a lot of the early church's negotiations is, okay, how do we now live with the world? And how do we conduct ourselves? What does this mean? Do we have to just be Jewish and do all the Jewish stuff? Do we need to wear phylacteries on our foreheads? And what do we have to do here? So the church was negotiating all of these things, using the teachings of Jesus to try to do that. So the people that spent three years with Jesus had natural authority within the church. They're the people that knew God's word the best. So they were able to coach and, and teach. So Peter's doing that in the in the epistle of First First Peter, and the word epistle just means letter. Um, in chapter 1, he gave encouragement to them because the church was also starting to see persecution. The Romans started to realize that these people don't worship our gods, they don't play by our rules, and they're not interested in our leadership because they're following this heavenly kingdom. And that was a threat to Rome. So they started to get some persecution. So in chapter 1, Peter says, gird up your loins, get ready for the trials. When those trials come, they're a way for us to evangelize. So as the government overreaches and we simply don't accept that, that's a resistant point where other people are watching how we handle it because other people are terrified of Rome and we're not. So there's a way that we can show our mettle under persecution that you simply can't show to people when everybody's happy. So the conduct then that Peter's encouraging them to do as we get to the end of chapter one was you are going to be holy through faith and hope since you have love through the word of God. And there's a progression there. Study the word of God, develop your love for the brethren, build your faith and hope so that you can be holy and seen by the world as such. But it's a heart thing that happens. You don't just accept Jesus and then say, I'm going to be holy and make that decision. It's a work that God does in you over time. So you get saved and you say, I better learn what God says in the word of God. And you commit yourself to it. And in doing that, God matures you and develops you to where your life becomes a testimony and a witness. And that's Peter's presentation. Then in chapter two, what we got to last week, part of doing that is to throw away your evil conduct. Get rid of the stuff you used to do to fit in with the world and start replacing it with things that are better. So you become a living stone in this building that Peter's talking about, which is the church. You become a block of it. You're an ambassador. You're a representative of Jesus. 
verse 5 in chapter 2. And then Peter sees the church as a spiritual temple set apart for God. This is what he says in verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, in the face of persecution, you have to focus on the things that are amazing about walking with Christ. That that's where you put you. The world is doing all this stuff around you, but you simply look to Jesus and praise Jesus. Same kind of thing that when the snakes were biting the Israelites, they had to look to the bronze serpent on the, on the cross, <laughs> and he told them to look up instead of focusing on what was around them, and suddenly the snakes stopped biting. And it's, it's counterintuitive to our flesh. We want to look at what's going on around us. And God tells us to do the exact opposite. Look to him. And blessed are those who believe and cannot see. So we share our faith then, and part of sharing our faith is simply celebration. And this world will get worse and worse and messier and messier, and as we celebrate in the middle of it, people start to ask, why are those people so happy? It's either because they're drunk, which is what they accused Peter of, you guys are just drunk. And he's like, it's 10 in the morning. We're not drunk. We just love the Lord. And we're celebrating our king. What's wrong with that? And the answer from the Romans was, we don't know, but we're going to start persecuting you anyways. Um, verses 11 and 12 begin another appeal to Christians to choose honorable conduct and not fleshly lusts. Set yourself apart. That's the, the literal meaning of the word consecrate. Be different. Um, and I honestly think you can be following Jesus, you can love Jesus, and not set yourself apart for a season. And, and, and honestly, you just don't get the blessings of the kingdom. And you don't see them and you don't experience them because you're not doing that. And then we get to verse 13, which is where we start. And what we're going to get moving forward, and this is why I broke it at verse 12 and 13, Peter's going to begin to give very specific examples of how to do this in the face of nasty situations or nasty worldly relationships and how to change your mindset in the middle of those relationships. He's going to start with the government. Then he's going to go to our bosses, because sometimes we get nasty bosses. Then he's going to go to husbands, which is like husbands, that's not a compliment. Like he's going to start, now you got to deal with husbands. And then he's going to give a note for husbands on how we behave. But these are all the primary relationships that we deal with in life. This is part of why I like Peter, to be honest. He goes right to how to live and how to do it. So he's very practical with it. And there are ways to conduct yourself. One other caveat before we dig into verse 13, the word submit in our culture, the world has turned into an evil thing. Submitting is to be weak. Submitting is to be um, passive, to be a doormat. And they've, they've put a connotation around the word submit that is simply not what Peter has. But let me say this. The word submit in the Roman culture was equally demonized. He's using this word in order to get our attention. And, and even today in America, this word, word still gets our attention. It still makes us think. And, and I think Peter chose this word because it's countercultural. It's not that back then, you know, people were submissive to masters and people and women would be submissive to husbands and that was some negative thing. Peter's re redeeming this word even in the Roman culture where women were dominant in most households. Women were dominant in most churches. Pagan religions were dominated by women in, in charge. The Roman Empire did not have a problem with women in charge. You know, I mean, Cleopatra was somebody that was in the Roman Empire. So it wasn't an issue to them in the same way that it's not an issue in America. Peter's calling them to be separated, holy, and different, and these are examples of how to do that. 
but nothing in your flesh is going to want to do what I'm about to read. So don't get mad at me. It's between you and Peter at this point, right? So I'm just going to read it and teach it and we'll go through it. But we're going to start with our government. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. That would be the police officers and the courts for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you can put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using the liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants to God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I'm going to say verse 17 is the center of all of these arguments. So keep like underline that, circle it, put a note by it, and then just keep rereading it as I teach this lesson today. Um, submitting yourselves, being a good citizen... Regardless of the fact that we're ruled by a new king and a new kingdom, Peter directly commands us to submit to the laws of the land. Peter is writing this in the context of Jewish rebellion against Rome. The primary Jewish philosophy is we don't pay taxes to Rome, we rebel against Rome. This rebellion will cause mass slaughter in just a few years after this letter is written. And in that sense, Peter's almost prophetic in that he's preparing the Christians to act in a way that will save them from the Roman slaughter. But that rebellion of the Jewish people was the prevailing attitude, and Peter says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of Rome. Now, imagine like just how that would burn the politically active people in the church, right? That would just set them off. Like, what are you talking about? We're here to fight Rome. And he's saying, don't fight Rome, submit to them. Like, it's the opposite of what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh wants to battle, and he's like, nope, we submit. Along with writing in context of persecution, submit yourselves, then, is within persecution. What he's arguing here isn't get along with Rome. He's saying accept what they're doing to you and, do, and choose your attitude in the middle of it. That's very different than resisting or fighting, um, but it is actually a form of battle and combat, which he's already set us up for in chapter 1 and 2. This is the context of how we do battle. So this is, you know, pat, pat, peaceful resistance is what he's arguing for. This is what Martin Luther King Jr., it's what Gandhi came back to. They were reading these verses to say, wait, actually this is an active way to fight injustice. Submit to the injustice. Let them arrest you. Let them put you in prison. And I'm so thankful we're not there in America, but you got a lot of Christians awfully worked up about nonsensical things this government is doing. Our government is nowhere near what Rome was doing when Peter wrote this. So in some sense, we read this and we're comforted by the fact that we live in a country that doesn't put us in prison yet. But what if they do? Can we still read Peter and obey what Peter says? Are we ready for that kind of a culture and that kind of a government? Um, so we should note that Rome was not a democracy. So submitting to Rome was not submitting to the law that people have created. Um, so we, I think we have a blessing in that, that this is a democracy. One of our callings in submitting ourselves to the ordinance of man is that in America, we have the right to go be a delegate, to go to our primaries, to choose our candidates, to pick our leaders. So submitting yourself to an ordinance of men under a democracy means participating in government. And some of you don't participate in government. So think about that a little bit, because the ordinance of democracy is every citizen should be involved in that process. So we should be at those things. We should be there. Not to fight the system, but to participate in it because that's the base ordinance of a democracy is to participate. 
So to do that peacefully and with civic conduct, to be good people in those situations, perhaps one of the reasons we have laws being made that are not so great for Christians is because not enough Christians are being involved and in, in following a calling that some of you might have to politics. And in a democracy, that is a calling that submits yourself to the system that we're in. That said, it says for the Lord's sake, and I, I just want to emphasize this, the reason we do it is not to elevate ourselves or to be prideful or to think, oh, I'm, I'm somebody at my little delegation. I've earned this position of authority. When humans get elevated into government positions, there's a temptation of pride that goes with that. And so when Peter puts that in, the reason we do it isn't to build our own ungodly pride. The reason we do it is because God said to do it. So we do it in humility. We do it out of service. And it causes us to then be a witness. We also represent the body. When people think of believers and we pro boldly proclaim what the Bible says, what God says to us, and we do that even in those situations, this is a chance for us to build a reputation for Christians. I'm going to argue, and I don't think this is a tough argument, in America right now, Christians don't have a good reputation. Honestly, if you've met a non-believer lately, part of the whole wall you got to talk through is, well, those Christians are hypocrites, those tr Christians are wrapped up in ridiculous human traditions, and I don't want to be any part of that. Or even worse, within the church, you get people that say, well, I love Jesus, but I'm just not a religious person. Well, I hate to break it to you, but religion is simply the devotion of behavior towards a belief system. Everybody's religious. What they're talking about is a hypocritical religious church that they don't want to be part of. So, when, when people talk about those Christians, we as a church represent those Christians. We should be out in public being those Christians and letting them see that there are people that just love Jesus and we're not all wrapped up in some of those things. And instead of being hypocrites, we be humble and we admit that we're not perfect. We never try to be perfect. That leaves only one accusation left. The only thing the world can accuse Christians of, theoretically, is that they're holy and they're acceptable and they worship God and I don't want to worship that God. Therefore, I don't like that Christian. And in that, that following every ordinance of man and being holy in the midst of that, we then have a situation where what they're, it's between them and God. It's not us that's in the picture anymore. That's a really complex set of things in like three verses, right? But think of what he's doing. It says every ordinance of man, Christians get caught up on this. Well, does that mean I obey when they say we can't meet as a church? No, because in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Peter sets all this up by saying we're going to follow the ordinance of God. So there is a line when governments over, in fact, all governments grow and grow and grow until they cross this line. And the line is to first be holy and to follow what God's told us to do. That has everything to do with how we, how we behave in our families, how we behave in our homes, what the words that come out of our mouth being truthful words, and it has to do with how we operate as a church. Those are areas the government has no business walking into, but when the government does cross that line, suddenly those lines are not the ordinances of man, they're the ordinance of God being challenged. And I think Christians, we have to have discernment around that, we have to know where that line is. So yes, we obey, yes, we are peaceful citizens, yes, we do things when it comes to the things that are the domain of mankind. And that specifically is the governors, the king, those who are sent but for the punishment of evildoers like the cops. Like when a cop says freeze, we put our hands up and we freeze. When the cop says pull your car over, we pull our car over. Christians don't run because we're scared of going to jail. We pull the car over and say, here's my hands, take me to jail. We're the most peaceful criminals that they ever find when they start crossing that line. 
right? But when it comes to the ordinance of man, we obey them, we submit to them. And submitting here is assuming that you have a government that is trying to manage law and order. They're trying to get the evildoers. And so when you live in a society where evildoers are not gotten anymore, the next step is for them to go after the good doers. Like it's just a transition. And historically these things happen and historically the church explodes when that happens. Right? I can't wait for Christians to be separated and they're forcing the separation because what happens is people start to see the peace, the joy, and the celebration of Christians in the middle of persecution and it's a witness. What do you get when a government then commands things of the Spirit? What if God, God's claims on our lives start to come into conflict with the government? I want to just point out other Bible verses that address this. Way back in the old days, Nebuchadnezzar told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they couldn't pray in public, and they had to bow to his statue, right? That's crossing the line. It's, it's false God, false worship, and not praying, which God's asked us to do. So in the response to that, I think this is also in the scripture, and this is why I say this is a discernment thing. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It's, we're not debating this with you. It's not your domain. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. We won't do it. But that's still submission. You see what I'm saying? They're still treating him. They still call him king. They still give him his position, his authority. He's where God has put him. And so to say, you do what you need to do, and we're going to do what God's called us to do. But you've crossed a line here, and we will not obey this law. We won't do that. So I think we're getting close to that. We have a number of positions and people in America that have had to make those stands around things that have to do with our interpersonal relationships, how we identify ourselves or don't identify ourselves, and we have people that are being called into that. I just talked to a good friend of 30 years last night. His wife is going to leave the school district because the school district's going to make them sign a document that says they will teach every kid about pronouns. And start calling them things that they're not supposed to call them. Well, in a public school, she's, she's, she will not sign that document. And she's going to use Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. I won't sign that document. You do what you need to do and I'll submit to that authority. And so in that sense, they're just getting ready for the battle. They're going to do that. They're not going to sue the district. They're just going to accept it. And if they can no longer work because that district's crossing that line, she can no longer submit to that. And she's going to submit to whatever punishment comes. And in doing that, I guarantee everybody in that community is watching her behavior. The spotlight goes on the Christian that takes a stand. And the milk lukewarm people start to question their own faith. And this is good, right? We want people to live for their king unapologetically, not perfectly, but with conviction. And that matters. So those who are sent, the police, for this is the will of God. God actually wants this. When nations start to forget their God, trials come so that God can remind them of what Christianity really looks like. And he wants the remnant to stand up. He wants to do that. So part of the, to silence the ignorance. The problem here is an outright combat. These aren't people that are just saying, I hate Jesus. These are people that are just ignorant that they're crossing a line. They need to be reminded. You don't get to determine how we run our families. You don't get to determine how we run our churches. You don't get to control what comes out of my mouth. 
Freedom of speech was a Christian idea that was attached onto the, to the Constitution, that governments don't control speech. So when we start to see that happen, even not through governments, that becomes a real thing. Um, verse 16, as free yet not using the liberty as a cloak for vice. Peter can, always comes back to the idea that part of what Christianity is, is your spirit is free to do whatever it wants. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. And so the idea is, the idea of that freedom is that God gave you that freedom so that you could choose to not sin. And you say, well, that's its own kind of boundary. No, it's not. God's giving you actual control over those things. You actually can stop sinning. And with Lord and through the word of God and through the love and the faith and the hope and everything he set up in chapter one and two so far, you have tools to do that. So you become then bond servants of God. That's the Greek word doulos. Here's what a bond servant is. There are servants. This is not just a servant. This is a bond servant. A bond servant is someone who chooses to be a slave. So you get done with whatever involuntary slavery you have, and you've paid off your debt to your master, but you can turn around. I just think this is a beautiful law in the Old Testament. You can turn around and say, you know what? I like working for you. You're a good boss. You're not cruel. You're not mean. And I want to give my life to your service for the rest of my life. This is a bond servant. And that bond servant, then the price has been paid. It's all taken care of. And you walk up to the doorpost of their house and you say, I want you to drive an iron nail through my ear in front of your whole family, which bonds me to your household. This is a bond servant. And, and you think this is really grisly and ugly, but girls, you've pierced your ears. I know it, right? It's not that bad. So you go up to the doorpost and you say, do it. And then the master comes up, takes a hammer and nail, pokes right through the ear. You are inches from your master when that happens. Closest you're probably ever going to be to that person. But there's an intimacy to a bond servant. And Peter's using that term right here. That you choose to be, you take all that freedom you just got. You're, you're no longer a slave to anything. But you turn around and say, thank you for my freedom. I still want to stay in your house. So when we serve the king, we do it because we chose to serve the king, not because we were forced to. I, it's just such a beautiful idea. And we've lost that bond servant idea. But giving your life for the debt that was paid to Jesus, your king, free in sin, but bonded to the holiness of Christ, it's beautiful. It's the only thing that fixes our soul. It fix, it heals us. It builds us. It's beautiful. Then we get a memorizable summary of everything Peter's saying. 17, just memorize this. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. This is what he's talking about. Remember this when we get to the men and women stuff later in the chapter, right? This is the point. Other people in the earthly government get our honorable behavior. We're honorable towards everybody. But the church gets our love. Like we choose to love the people in our fellowship, right? The, the command here is really clear. He has separated the world around us that we go to every week and the brotherhood of the saints. And there's different behaviors expected between those two. God gets our fear. And this isn't like a, I'm scared of horror movies fear. This is you fear what you serve. Because if I lose it, that's more terrifying to me than anything else in the world. So I choose to fear God because God's the thing I never want to lose. And that's the kind of fear we're talking about here. We worship what we can't do without. And we, we put our energy and our life into those things we just don't want to do without. I don't want to do without the blessing of God, so I fear God. 
So, and then the key here is the dealing with rulers, bosses, and spouses goes back to that. Those are people we honor. The king is someone in that category of all people. That levels the king too. And, and in the flesh, like a lot of times when you meet people that have risen through the ranks, they want you to pay them homage. So when you treat them like a normal human, some of them are offended by that. Some of them are actually grateful for it. Hey, I finally found somebody who's not trying to kowtow to me all the time. And so Christians often become advisors to people in power because we don't see them as gods. We just see them as normal people. And so you've seen a number of times with Joseph becoming Pharaoh's number two. Um, we've seen, well, he became you know number two in a lot of situations because he just treated people like normal. Um, so we see that. We often see that. Then we get submitting to our bosses, our masters. This is workplace advice. It's the exact same advice as how we deal with our country. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear because you don't want to lose your job, right? So not only with the good and the gentle, but with the harsh. Say you have a horrible boss, submit to that boss too. You know, it's interesting for this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief and suffering wrongfully, maybe your boss is not paying you right. Maybe your boss is asking you to do things you didn't sign up for. Maybe your boss is actually crossing a bunch of lines. As long as they're not the God lines, just do it. Be happy that you get paid at the end of the week. We always raised our kids and say, when you take a job for somebody else, you're giving them a piece of your life because you give them 40 hours a week. So when you give them that 40 hours, here's one way to, if you have a good boss or even a bad boss, give them everything they ask for plus 10%. And I just think that's a good principle. May your boss ask you to do something and then you add to that. They say sweep the floor and you're like, it's not my turn to sweep the floor. What, what if the new person sweeps the floor? But you just sweep the floor and then mop it too. And just give them 10% more. Maybe that's 50% more. But that idea of just saying, like, even if you're suffering wrongfully in verse 19, for what credit is it if when you are beaten? Okay, let's just point out, we don't have bosses that beat us anymore, right? Right? <laughs> Peter's talking about a whole different kind of harsh in verse 19 than we experience in America. So you have nothing to whine about at your job. Like, stop whining about your boss, Danny. <laughs> When you're beaten for your faults, you screw up at work and somebody actually thrashes you? Holy moly. And he's saying, take it patiently. <laughs> what? Here's why. When you do good and suffer, and if you take it patiently, this is commendable, not to your boss. You may not be witnessing to your boss. It's commendable before God. God sees what you're going through. He sees the injustice of it. He sees that you're doing it patiently because he commanded you to do it patiently and he accepts that as an offering. Wow. That changes our attitude. Peter's giving them psychological equipment to deal with persecution. You're doing it right in front of God. So when you're before kings and rulers and they ask you to deny your God, you just say, sorry, I can't do that. And smile because you know you just earned a huge reward in heaven. Like, go ahead, push me more, right? Because I'm just stacking it up right now. So keep coming in this direction. I remember as a professor, when I was asked to teach things that I saw no, no data for or no evidence for in the classroom, when I was told by another professor I had to teach these things, I could just say, sorry, I can't do that. Because I don't see that it's godly to teach things that I don't know to be true to students. Oh, stack up the persecution, keep it coming. Because God sees every bit of it. I love that. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Because of conscience, 
when everybody else is complaining, we get to work and dig in. When everybody else is taking a break, we're the first ones to get back to it because we have a conscience. We recognize that God's watching us work in our day-to-day stuff. I think people are interesting because they're like, man, I want to serve the ministry. I want to serve the king. You know what Peter would say is, how about serve your boss? Just do that job that you got and do it well and do it in a way that they can see that you're the best worker they got. Because that is, I'm going to read it again, commendable before God. And he sees it. So the idea of doing ministry isn't necessarily relegated to what you do in the brotherhood. You're obligated to love the brotherhood, but you're also obligated to honor all people, including your masters, your bosses, I think is the word we'd use today. So there's that idea. Then verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin nor deceit was found in his mouth? You can be the perfect employee and still take a bad boss. And you have a model in Jesus Christ that did exactly that for you. And I think the implication is here, maybe you can do that for Jesus. And maybe you can do that for the king. Frankly, I think you get a a harsh or an unjust boss and they know they can just take advantage of you. The world would say you're just being a doormat. You shouldn't do that. Get the union involved. Make a thing about it. But as a Christian, we just do it. And And we do it with grace. And the catch point here is that people that are not regarding God in their worship can see somebody who does. And it becomes a witness. But be careful when they say, why are you such an airhead doormat? You say, because I'm doing this because I think it's commendable before God. I think God sees me work hard. So I'm not doing this for the boss. I'm doing this for the God Almighty. And that, again, that's something that amazingly gets you in trouble with people because the boss wants you to honor them. And it's like, I'm not doing this to honor you. I'm doing this because God watches me work. You can either take advantage of a great employee or you can be threatened by that. And so there's definitely a truth to it. Verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he committed himself to those who judge righteously. Or committed himself to him who judges righteously. He knew that God would make it right. God will do all these things. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Greek word for tree there is wood. So he bore himself... For his body on the wood, that's a clear reference to the cross, I think, that we, having died to our sins, might live for righteousness by those whose stripes we were healed. Again, a clear reference to the beatings that Jesus took. He took beatings. Everyone in this room could take a whipping if you needed to. I'm just grateful that most of us will never have to take a whipping. But we could. It's doable. Is it fun and enjoyable? Heck no. But he bore himself for us. We can... In his name, do it for them. Now, there's no blessing, of course, if you're getting punished and it's because you did something wrong, right? That's not why we want to be in a punishment situation. We want to be in a punishment situation despite the fact that we do good all the time. Romans 6, 5. If we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. If I've already let myself and my will just be killed for Christ, then I'm just here to serve Christ. I think this is one of the most powerful images of baptism that we have. For those of you that have been baptized, you maybe understand that, but it's this image of you dying to yourself and rising in service to Christ, and you wash it all the way. 
we used to do baptisms down at Devil's Lake, and we'd say, we're going to leave the old man down at the bottom of Devil's Lake. He can hang out with the devil, but the new creation is going to rise with Christ. And you're washed clean, and you start over, and that and people think, oh, I'll never sin again. Yeah, you will, because you're human, but you're, there's a new creation in you that's growing and fighting that every single day. Suddenly you feel guilty. You can't enjoy sin anymore. It's kind of a, if you really liked your sin, that's a problem. But you start to feel really guilty every time you do it. That's because God's creating in you something new. He's called you to a higher purpose. So I just, this idea of doing this, we having died to sin, this is a clear image in the New Testament. It gets spoken over and over and over again. It's mirrored in the Old Testament, but there's this idea that we actually conceive that we're dead to ourselves. That's a weird idea for a non-Christian to handle. But for Christians, we're like, oh, I get that. Yep. I made a choice. I made a choice to live for Christ. I stopped fighting the battle between me and him, trying to balance the two. I got sick of it. And I was like, I'm sick of it. And I just want to live for Christ. To live for righteousness is the words that, that Peter uses here. I think it's interesting because one of the things that I've struggled with in my life is I think that when I'm talking to people about Christianity, the world always wants to talk about what they're giving up. And I think as Christians, we push back on that a little bit. It's not about just giving up all this sin stuff that you like so much. It's about enjoying things that are living for righteousness. Like, I like living for righteousness more than I liked living for my sin. My sin just caused me shame. It left me thirsty and hungry, and I never got fulfilled in it. But I live for righteousness, and I felt fulfilled on day one, and my appetite keeps getting bigger, and there's more food there for it. I'm actually living in a different kind of way. And I think one of the things that as we talk to non-believers, like they're seeing the stripes that were, you know, well, the suffering that we go through and the things that we're at. And like, you don't get it. I'm so much happier now than I was. I think so much clearer now than I was foggy before I was saved. And God's cleared the fog from my head. I, he's the defroster of the Holy Spirit. Right, And suddenly I can see out my windows and I can see the world for what it is and I can just enjoy it. I never want to go back to being half blind, ever. So it's not what I gave up, it's what I chose. And, and I think that Peter frames it that way. I think it's a healthy thing for us to frame it that way too. That idea of by the stripes you were healed, Isaiah 53, 5. It's used for Jesus, not some hypothetical believer getting whipped, but an actual whipping on this planet that he took on our behalf. If Jesus paid our debt, I think it's one. It's an interesting thing. If I've, I paid off a couple debts, and it's so fun when you pay off that car loan. But you know what's interesting about paying off a car loan? I don't worry about it after I've paid it off. Like once the debt's paid, I don't think back and go, oh, how am I going to find the, the money to pay a debt that I don't owe anymore? <laughs> right? Nobody does that. We only worry about debts that we still owe. And we plan to how to pay them and make the payments and serve that thing that is just going to suck our life. But when you're in Christ and you're free in Christ and those stripes have paid the debt, I don't worry about the debt anymore. It changes our relationship to sin incredibly. Like I might screw up and Steph points it out to me and I'm, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. Do you forgive me? Most of the time she says yes. And then I don't worry about it anymore. It's done and it's gone because I can do the same thing with my Lord. Lord, forgive me for not being a loving husband today. Forgive me for screwing up with my kids. Forgive me for forgetting to send Sam Bible verses this week. Lord, let me off the hook on that. And I, and I hear the same voice from my God that's gotten clearer and clearer every day I've walked in righteousness. You're forgiven, Sean. 
get up and start over. It just changes our relationship. Such a beautiful thing. Go to verse 25. It just keeps getting better. For you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What? Earthly humans can be really, really cruel, but we have a soul overseer too. I might have a boss at work. I might have a boss with my president. I might have a boss in my marriage, but I have another overseer that's over the top of all of those people, right? So for you were, past tense, it's interesting how that is. When it says you were like sheep going astray, Peter's actually changing the Old Testament verse. If you go to Isaiah 53, 6, it says, all we have gone like sheep gone astray. But Peter changes the verse. Now, I don't know about you, but when there's those famous verses that get recited and somebody changes the words a little bit, it gets your attention. So he says, for you were like sheep going astray. He personalizes it. It's not a general thing for all believers. It's personalized. And I think Peter did that on, on purpose. There's a universal sin that we all grow up with and we choose not God in our lives. And then we turn around and we choose God instead. And now it became personal. You are not going to go astray. You're a sheep that's with the flock. Sheep going astray. <laughs> we don't do a lot of shepherding anymore. Most of Peter's readers would understand sheep herding and shepherding because it was a big deal in the Middle East. It still is. So a little research on sheep, and this is great. Studying sheep is like its own Bible study. Like just God made this dumb animal, so we had an image of who we are spiritually, right? Everything about sheep just mirrors it. And so God picked this animal for a particular reason. Um, sheep actually do go astray. They're flock animals. They're herd animals. They like to hang with the herd. Most herd animals are pack animals. When the whole pack is together, they go to sleep because they're safe. They're comfortable. Sheep are unique in that they just look around and go, I'm sick of the flock. And they go walking off on their own. They're just idiots. So they go asleep. Most sheep that go astray die within a day or two. They don't survive outside the flock. And God says that about us. The further away they get, the more likely they are to be eaten, to get stuck, or to break a leg and fall off a cliff. Right? And you think about that and you just go, wow. Charles Spurgeon points out, the sheep goes astray, it is said, all the more frequently when it's the most dangerous to do so. A lion shows up and the best protection the sheep have is to stay together as a flock. Let the rams butt the lion and try to survive it. But sheep do the opposite of this. The lion shows up and the sheep just go, blah, and they run. <laughs> and they run away from the flock, which the lions love because they just sit and go, there's my prey. I'm going right after that one that's not with the flock. But I've experienced this. Steph and I have talked about this. We, when we first started saying, okay, we want to be in Bible study every week. We want to be with the flock. Actually love the people we hang out with on Sundays. When we had to miss a Sunday, man, the enemy comes at you. you we could, like, there was a difference. Like, we just, our energy level went down. Our attention went down. Our joy started to fade. And we're like, dang, the further away we get from the flock the more likely the enemy is to come get us. Sheep will literally run off a cliff when they're, when they're running from perceived danger. So you can go, bah, and scare sheep, and they will kill themselves running away from things. It's amazing. So SavvyFarmLife.com has some tips on how to take care of sheep. I thought this was a nice detour for this because Peter uses this image. Um, number one, uh, sheep will run from danger and fear. Number two, they will run away from curiosity. They're just curious about stuff. 
so they leave the flock. And number three, they will leave out of hunger. They get hunger, and instead of waiting to be fed or being led to green pastures, they'll go off to worse territory looking for food. And then the fourth reason they run is because they lose focus and attention. Like, honestly, is this, this is the same thing with human beings. Um, we, we fear things, so we, lo- we, we are ashamed that we're scared, so we leave the flock. Right? I'm just not in a great position right now, so I, don't, I can't be with a flock because I'm not perfect today. Well, we never ask for perfection. We run out of curiosity and desires, so we, our lusts will take us away from the flock. We get spiritually hungry, and we think we're going to find that somewhere else. And then we get, and then the last one, that inattention, like we get dull over time. We are like blades. When we get used, we have to sharpen. And that's what Sundays are. We sharpen our blade every week. So our chief enemy, of course, see this as absolute opportunities. Strayed sheep, this is still from the website, quote, result from distress and agitation away from the flock. And you or the flock will hopefully hear its calls for help. Somebody leaves the flock, sheep will start to make noise. Like they'll wake up and realize, where's my flock? Because they actually are flock animals. So they get more and more anxious and distressed the further they are from the flock. Christians, this is so consistent with humanity. The less attached you are to the people in this room, the more anxiety and stress you're going to fear, just like sheep. It's true. Or maybe not the people. You might have a fellowship up in Duluth, but stay connected with your fellowship. Straying from the flock is your best, your best chance to get killed or beat up. Staying with the flock is your best chance for survival. Or a, a stick that is burning with the Holy Spirit when pulled out of the fire and set over in the grass is going to smolder out and die. Oh, I'm doing it on my own. Oh, yeah. See how long that lasts. Sheep, sheep are followers. This is, again, from Savvy Farm Life. They're usually leaders in the flock. And these are the ones that the rest will follow without question. Unfortunately, <laughs> for the followers, leaders sometimes get distracted, too. This, people look at the church and see how the church fails, and you get these leaders, they just get off track. They lose their focus, and they go wandering off just like everybody else. Only when a leader goes wandering off, they bring the flock with them. And in the church, the same thing happens. How do we keep from straying? Peter says, have now returned. And he gives more great answers. I'm just going to keep going. This is, again, how do you keep sheep from straying? Method number one, you put up a fence. God's put up the law. Here's the law. Stay within these boundaries. That's not for restricting us. It's for us to be safe. Number two, get a dog. Right? Spiritually speaking, a good dog will run back and forth and become a living fence for the flock. This is a cliff. Don't run here because dogs are smarter than sheep, right? So we get this idea that we think that the dogs think independently. It's one of their features and they clearly stand between trouble and the flock. Peter calls himself an apostle, a messenger. We have people in the church that are simply giving pastoral care by being that running dog saying, don't go over here. Yet you still have sheep that ignore the dog. And sometimes the dog has to nip the sheep in the heel. And some of you have experienced this from me. You'll, you'll say something and I'll say, hey, the Bible says this. That's a good shepherd, a good sheep dog, nipping that sheep in the heel to keep them with the flock. Stay within the boundaries. Number three, get a shepherd. 
This is a higher order of thinking that all that 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 a dog does, but a shepherd can do something a dog can't. A shepherd can plan ahead. We have a good shepherd in Jesus Christ, right? Like leaders in the church, we're just dogs, right? But Jesus is a good shepherd and he plans ahead for us. He actually sees danger before we get close enough to get there. We're like a flock just moving around and a good shepherd will guide the flock towards green pastures. This is where the blessing is over here. So I have yet to leave the farm site, by the way. I'm just reading this going, this is just precious. And God picked this image of sheep, which is where we get the phrase that when you come to church, this is where the sheep like to eat, right? This is where the good food comes every week. So we had a pastor that used that. And people kept calling him saying, do you sell horse food too? And they thought it, they thought it wasn't a church. It was like a fleet farm, like <laughs> feed mill or something. So, but they had paid for the sign up above the church. Anyways, chapter two starts with the workplaces. And now when we hit chapter three, we're in marriages. The pattern stays the same. I think that's so important to understand this because so many people take this out of context and use it to teach about like how men and women relate to each other. And Peter's using this in the thread of thoughts of we submit to our government, but not to cross the line of our spiritual commitment to God. We submit to our bosses, but not when they ask us to deny our God. And wives submit to husbands, but not when they ask you to do something sinful or deny your God. Like there are lines here. And I think Peter leaves those things that people that take this out of contents like to forget how Peter conditioned these statements. And we're going to hit those. And I hope I do it justice so we don't have more argument over this, but we leave here with more understanding around it. Um, Verse one, wives, likewise, same as the government, same as the masters and bosses, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some of you do not, some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So referring to this context, submissive here is the Greek word hupostasio, or there might not be an I, hupostasio, to arrange under to subject to, to yield to the admonition of, or to obey. Hupostasio. Doesn't say doormat, doesn't say weak, doesn't say um, that they're unable to stand up for themselves, but it is to put yourself, literally hupostasio is to order yourself under something. And God often asks us to create order in our life. I use that term a lot because it helps me kind of think it through. But Peter's assuming that there's an order to the family and that husbands are the head of that family. Why does he make that assumption? Do an Old Testament Bible study on men and women. Because God made us that way and he set it up that way. Um, Paul goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, so does Jesus. That there is a order to things between men and women. There is a difference there. And it was part of the curse, by the way. So Jesus showed no partiality to authority, yet he submitted to civic authorities. So does it mean that he was less than when he submitted to? Like, think about that. Jesus, in submitting to his parents, was that making him somehow less important? And we in our culture think submitting means to put yourself as less than someone else. Biblically, that's not the case at all. Because we see Jesus in submission, but we know Jesus is definitely over the people he's submitting to. You can be equal before God spiritually and still set yourself in order under earthly situations that are, by the way, a curse, right? So Jesus obeyed his parents. Jesus obeyed the government even unto death, but it did not make him inferior. It made him honorable. It made him peaceful. 
and it made him good and blessed before God. Think about that. And if it's a struggle for you to submit to other people in an orderly way under a cursed world, maybe this is one of the ways we actually make God smile. That despite our own will, we're able to put ourselves in order in that sense. Why would a godly ever person ever want the opposite of blessing God? So I, I, for me, I just love that. What's the blessing in being submissive? And we just saw that with government. We just saw it with bosses. But the idea that God creates order is to rein in sin, to reduce conflict, and so that we don't have fights. Frankly, I would argue that Steph has submitted to me a handful of times in 30 years. But it comes at those points where we simply can't agree on if I should take the job or not, or if we should do this thing or not. And it's been very few occasions because for the most part, we are of a unified spirit. And when we make decisions, we do it together and we talk about it. But at the end of the day, you can't be married for 30 years and not run into some loggerheads. And when there's a loggerhead, a loggerhead being a term from the foresting industry. That's for you, Caitlin, because you're from up north. When the, when the logs bump in the river, they make it so you can't go forward anymore because they're loggerhead. And what you got to do is go in there with a claw or whatever and take one of those logs and pull it back against its will so the other one can get through and the sluice gates and the logs can continue moving forward. At the end of the day, there has to be a thing where it, that gets done. So the opposite of a wife being submissive is talked about elsewhere in the Bible. It is to be defiant. It is to be bossy. A, a non-submissive wife is lazy versus working hard, Proverbs 31. Or if you want to go to Proverbs 2, like a non-submissive wife is a dripping faucet, a nag, someone who can't let something go and just continues on it over and over again, why would a godly person ever want any of those things to be their defining characteristics? So God creates order, and he creates order in a marriage too. He creates a tiebreaker, and the tiebreaker makes it so everything can keep moving forward. But it's not natural, just like it's not natural with governments, and it's not natural with bosses. It is a spiritual decision, and it's a flesh concession that has to be made. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. For people that can't submit, they go to bed angry a lot, and it's really hard to live that way. It creates a bitterness and a hardness of heart. It's okay to be angry, but don't let that turn into sin. It's okay to disagree with your boss, but don't let that turn into defiance. Right? So specifically, even if some do not obey, Peter takes the extreme example for Christian wives and unbelievers. Even for your husbands that are jerks, you do this. So technically, this would include non-believers because Peter's talking to a church where sometimes the wife gets married, but the husband's still a pagan worshiper going down to the temples and hanging out with temple prostitutes. So this is a horrible kind of situation, right? So you're going, okay, is what do you do in that situation? He says to just give quiet service, to do it without a word. I think why without a word is a weapon, and I'm speaking as a husband now. When my wife stops talking to me, that is not natural. Usually my wife tells me everything. So when she has to submit, her weapon is to not talk. And I know as a husband, I've done something that has crossed a line. <laughs> So I'll say, honey, what's wrong? And she'll say, nothing. <laughs> no, I know something's wrong. You got to just tell me. And, and like at that point, she'll now I've asked her to tell me. Now she tells me, and I, oh, shoot, that was horrible. And what it does is it convicts me. 
So to be quietly submissive without a word, even when I'm not being obedient to my Christ, that is a tool for women to do that. But I'll tell you this, when I do something wrong and stuff just keeps nagging me about it over and over and over again, just for me, I'll say, that does not work. It makes me resolve myself to it. And so the reaction that I just, and this is just for me, different husbands, different wives are going to operate differently. But I would say that, that without a word is the best path to, and Peter says, that they may be one. You're going to win them over by the fact that you're not going to give them your joy and normal self. You're just going to work in silence. Because the husband's created this situation where that happens. Does that make sense at all? To our non-married people, that makes sense? Like, I want to live in a house where my wife is happy. In fact, as a husband, that's the only thing I can imagine is I want my wife to be joyful. Steph will start to sing when she's doing work. And I'll be down here working. I can just hear Steph upstairs singing to herself. And it creates this mood in the house that's beautiful. And it's wonderful. And a singing wife is what I want as a husband. If my wife is being giving me the silent treatment, something's broken in the house and I got to figure out how to fix it. Right? So frankly, the quiet, quiet kindness of a wife pricks my conscience better than anything. I think that's what Peter's talking about here. Um, then it says in verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. What's chaste mean? In the Greek, it's hognos. It's to excite reverence, purity, cleanness, or holiness. They see that you're holy. And again, I think Peter's talking to people with non-Christian husbands. They're going to see that you've excited reverence. You're actually thrilled about serving Jesus. That's going to have effect on your husband. They're going to see that. So when it says to like this idea where Peter says to submit, I think he also gives tools to how you do influence the marriage and what the best way is to do that. Remember, Peter's a veteran husband too. He's been married for years when he writes this. So he's not writing out of ignorance. He's writing out of being a married guy, knowing what makes him change more often than not. So specifically, have some tact, have some grace with your dealing with others. Don't be awful. And your husband will see that in you. And he'll think, I got to be more worthy. I still remember it was about 10, 15 years into marriage. Steph was reading something in the Bible and she kind of said, Sean, I've just decided like, I'm going to just trust you. What a horrible burden to put on a husband. <laughs> what? Well, I'm just going to trust you. Well, I don't want you to trust me. I want you to tell me what you think. And I'll tell you what I think. But at the end of the day, I'm just going to trust you. Boy, if you want your husband to get more holy, give your life and say, I'm going to trust you with my life. Suddenly as a guy, we're like, okay, now I'm more responsible. Think of the psychology of that. I got to step up to that. I got to be more worthy. So if you're going to trust me, then I should probably be worthy of trust. And, and Peter's saying that that dance has to start somewhere. And it's a really good cycle to be in. Then he looks at the conduct in, in, in 2 verse 12. The topic of this entire passage is conduct. Being honorable amongst Gentiles, even if that Gentile is your husband. Be honorable. Be a, and have it be accompanied by fear. And the fear thing, I think, is real interest. Go back to 2.17. Who do we fear? The one that gets fear is God. That's the context of this. It could easily be misread saying, accompanied by fear, like to be fearful of your husband. No, you don't give fear to your husband. You give fear to God. So when you put your direction vertically, you become a different kind of wife. Your husband will eventually see that and be affected by that in some way. But your fear goes to God. The fear always goes to God biblically. So to read that as a fear of husband is a complete misreading of this passage. 
So as with many passages, um, Peter says to fear God and seek holiness. And here, here he's saying, seek holiness, your chaste conduct, accompanied by a fear of God. And we do the same thing with government. We do the same thing with our bosses. When that government or boss crosses the line of God, which Peter's already established, you say, no, thank you. So when your husband says, I'm going to do this sinful thing, you want to come with me? Wife has every right to say, no, thank you. Just like they would to government, just like they would. We have biblical examples of Christians doing that throughout the Bible. So to say wives need to submit to husbands in every regard and everything, you get these wings and sects of Christianity that totally abuse this. Suddenly this becomes a power over thing by husbands, yet we have no model or example of that anywhere in the Bible. So when we look at this, what does this look like when a government or a boss or a husband overreaches and reaches into God's domain or a husband asks a wife to do something that's sinful? And this can be in their life, their life choices. It can be in the bedroom. When your husband asks a wife to do something that's sinful, a wife has every right to say no thank you. Acts 4.17. But, and this, again, we look at what happens when overreaches happen into God's domain, and we see examples in the Bible that specifically address that. So Acts 4.17. But so that it spreads no further amongst the people... Let us severely threaten them that for that one they speak to no man in his name. What do you do when you have to address these overreaches? Address it. Speak to it. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. That's an overreach of a government. You can't tell Christians not to talk about Jesus. You can't tell teachers not to say the word Jesus. That's an overreach. But when Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. Who should I listen to, God or you? Boy, wives, that's a tool you have in your tool belt. Do I listen to God or do I listen to you? For me, we cannot speak of the things which we have, not, which we have seen and heard. We can only do the things God's told us to do. So you can't reach into that boundary. And I think Peter has never left that discussion point. He's teaching that there are those boundaries. So straight up, when a husband asks a wife to do something that's God's calling in her life, the wife's job is to say, no, I can't do that. I can only follow God. That creates some kinds of situations. What if both the husband and the wife are saying, we're following God? And you're not of a unified spirit on that. Somebody's off. Don't make that decision. Sit on it for a while. Pray about it. Because God's not going to ask a husband and wife to go two different directions. He has said, I've brought you together and made you one flesh. There is a point where when you pray about it and you think about it, and you're both willing to submit and humble yourselves before God, God simply won't call you in two different directions. Because you're together at that point. There's a covenant there. He gives more advice to wives. That's good advice. Don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Um... Please note the word merely here. Again, Christian groups take this out of context. Women should not wear gold. Nonsense. It says, don't let your adornment be merely outward. Like he's assuming that women are going to dress themselves nicely, that there's a, a certain there. It's clearly not a prohibit, pro, prohibition for grooming, or you'd have a lot of women with kind of rat's nest hairdos showing up all the time. Um, it is to not put your life into these things. Have you ever met women like this where it's all about how they look? all about their appearance. They have me rooms that are dedicated to makeup and, and mirrors. Don't let your looks be the only thing that guys see. This is a good tip for ladies. 
May look for a husband that sees more in you than just how you look. Please do that. Arranging your hair can be a reference to the Roman wigs that were popular at this time. The Roman women would get these wigs and put them on, so the arranging of hair could be a reference to that. Uh, I think wigs are a little gross sometimes, but some women use them. Sometimes they have to use them, especially if they're going through a cancer treatment or something like that. But don't let that be the thing that defines you. Don't walk into a church thinking, everyone should recognize my hairdo today. But they should recognize your good works. Verse 4, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the uncorruptible beauty of a a gentle and quiet spirit, which is the very precious thing in the sight of God. This is really similar to dealing with masters. Your gentle spirit is something that God sees. He witnesses it. When you can humble yourself in that way, God actually sees it and honors it, even if nobody else does. We do it for God. Verse 5, for in this manner, in the former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So clearly the fear that we saw back up in verse 2, right, was that verse 2? Here in verse 6, he says you shouldn't have any terror whatsoever, right? So there's clearly wives should not be in marriages where they're scared of their husband. This is important. Again, this is one of the accusations of Christianity is that Christian wives stay in abusive relationships. Peter clearly says you should not have terror in your marriage. There's one reason to get a divorce, that's adultery. There's one reason to get the heck out of the house, and that's terror. Right? You don't stay in that home when that happens. So I just hope we never run into that situation in the body. I think we all hope that. But if you're scared of your husband, you need to get out of the house. It's a clear mandate. Daughters, if you are and do good and you are not afraid with any terror, if you're not scared of the husband, stay there and be gentle and quiet-spirited. Don't dress up and try to be sexy for him to impress him. Adorn yourself with the inner heart and the preciousness of who you are. And just be that kind of person. Real beauty comes from who you are, not what you look like. I always tell my wife on the 1 to 10 rating, like when you're looking at other people physically, oh, she's a 9 or she's a 5. I think you go up about 3 points when you smile. You go down about 3 points when you frown. So ladies, you got a 6-point swing on that thing based on how much you smile. Try to put a smile on your face. That means choosing joy instead of anxiety and worry. Verse 4, but the hidden person of the heart in the incorruptibleness of the mild and gentle and quieter the tranquil. So literally translated, the hidden person of the heart in the incorruptible, gentle, quiet spirit is how that reads in the Greek. In the flesh, we can be troubled, we can be stirred, we can be contentious, but he's asking women to not be that. And I think in our flesh, there is a worry factor that goes on. And I think this is for both men and women. We get anxious and we get worried. And Peter's saying to have a gentle and a tranquil spirit that that's what you're called to. And that means a decision. I don't think that's natural in the same way that it's not natural to serve an unjust boss. But to seek those things and go after them. The spirit is precious in the sight of God. I commented on that already. Holy women who trusted in God. What's the way or the path to be gentle and tranquil? It's to trust in God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. Trust that God's got it. That takes away a lot of anxiety. But what about this and what about that and what about this? You know what? God's got it. He's still on his throne. Do you trust him or don't you? Do you trust that you're, 
going to be on a path in this life? Do you trust your husband will ever get saved? Trust in the Lord with those things. For in this matter, in former times, he points back to Sarah. I want to point out a few things about Sarah. Um, But let me say this first. The idea of submission to a husband, there are, and I think this is from God too, there are some women who simply can't and won't do that. I don't want to submit to some idiot guy. Here's your solution. Maybe you're not being called into marriage. Like marriage is voluntary. So if you're not open to that idea, maybe you don't need to do it. And, and I definitely wouldn't marry a guy who you don't at some level trust with your life, right? So if that's a way or a framework or an ordering to a marriage, that's a tough thing to do. And so some men are going to ask for more than others. Some men are going to be easier to follow than others because of their godliness. Um, but there is an ordering to things there. And I do think there's an option saying um, to their own husbands. Also in verse 5, I'll add this too. It says to their own husbands. I've so often, especially when you deal with kind of fringe groups where there's this husband dominance thing going on, the the verse here says to your own husband. It doesn't say to any other man on this earth. There is nothing here that implies that men are somehow greater or more important than women. But there is an order to marriage, which is voluntary. And so this isn't that women have to submit to men in general, especially in, there's no reference to that in the workplace. There's no reference to that civically. Um, There is simply a reference to that within marriage and with the headship or shepherding of the church that God has created in order to things. So, but it doesn't necessarily, and again, there's an equality of value, but an ordering to homes. And so there's just a a thing here and, 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 I think this is important because my wife is not obligated to obey any other man on this planet. She hasn't gone into a voluntary covenant relationship with that man. So she's not in that position. So I think that there's definitely this idea here that this can be expanded or abused. I think in context, Peter does everything he can do to say it the right way. Sarah, Genesis 12. Uh, Sarah is, uh, she obeys Abraham. She obeys Abraham even when Abraham's wrong. She's a great example. Like he tells her to pretend like she's not married and she does, even though that's wrong. Like that's not, that's a horrible thing to do, right? She is outspoken. Uh, When company says she's going to have a baby, she laughs at the company. Like she's kind of sprightly there because she's not obligated to obey the company. She can challenge them and Abraham's fine with that. Um, She uh, um, called her husband an old man in front of company. Ow! So that's in Genesis 18, 12, if you want that. It's in the same sentence that she calls him Lord, right? Well, Lord, you're an old man. You're an old, decrepit human being, Lord. Like, you don't get the sense here that this is the kind of submission that that our culture says submission is. Sarah's not weak in any way, shape, or form. She's honest. She's blunt. She's direct. um, She clearly runs things within that tent. Um, and frankly, Sarah didn't believe that she was going to have a baby. She laughed at the idea. So there, you don't get the sense that submission here is one of inequality. Um, she obeyed and honored Abraham is what Peter says. But when Abraham goes in, Genesis eighteen six, he says, So Abraham hurried to the tent and said to Sarah, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make some cakes. He just runs in and says, We need food. And then he leaves. And he assumes that the food's going to get made. In fact... There's no response from Sarah here. She just makes the cake. And in verse 8, we can assume the cakes are ready to eat. So there is this, there's an example, the only example where Abraham says, I need something, Sarah, and she just helps. 
And I got to tell you, in a partnership, when you've decided to be a couple with each other, when there's an emergency or there's something going on, order is great. The military loves order because they're getting ready for chaos, right? In the chaos of a situation, sometimes you just need, I need this and I need, I don't need to explain it. I just need help with this. And Sarah just does it. But here's the thing. Abraham leaves the tent and he just doesn't sit around like a lazy bum. He goes out to butcher the animals. So he's doing this while she's doing that. And there's a teamwork thing here. The expectation of Abraham is that Sarah's going to help out when there's a need for help. But there's no sign here of dysfunction. It looks a lot more like teamwork than dominance. So Sarah, I think, is a great example. She's not a captive. She's got her freedom in Christ. But she's free to serve Abraham and be a blessing when God sends messengers. She can help with that. She calls him Lord. Yes, it's a term of honor. It's a term of respect. We don't typically see wives calling our husbands Lord anymore. Um, but Steph calls me sweetie. She calls me love. She calls me dear. She uses terms of respect with me. And I think, honestly, for a lot of the majority of guys, what we really want from our wives is to be respected because we know we're idiots. And to have someone that respects us despite our flaws, that's beautiful. I think, generally, my wife tells me most women simply want to be loved. And I don't see any sign here that Abraham didn't adore his wife. She, he prized his wife. She was precious to him. So, when I show signs of respect to my boss, I'll say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. When I show signs of respect to someone who's at a, a position, I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll use terms of respect, too. And a term of respect in the ancient world was Lord, Master. Whose daughters you are if you do good. You're a daughter of Sarah if you simply aren't awful to people. Right? And you don't gossip and you're not mean and what's in your heart is goodness. It's the kind wife that helps, that builds up, that elevates her husband even when he's a fool. Because you're stuck with a guy. You might as well deal with him. So they're not afraid with any terror. I just want to emphasize again that Peter himself gives the condition for an abusive situation. We're to fear God in, in chapter 2 verse 17. We're not to be fearing our husbands in that kind of way. Ever. When a husband strikes a wife, she needs to get out of the house now and not go back, to be quite frank. Stay separated. Don't get remarried. You're still married to the guy. You don't need to live under his roof if he's going to beat you and cause a situation of terror, right? So I think it's really important we emphasize that and we get that straight. Um, later in chapter 5.5, 5, Peter's going to apply the same principles to church leaders. 1 Corinthians 16, there's an order to things. There are no other husbands in your life, but you've chosen that husband. But they're a choice. They're all honorable. They're honored and they're given respect. But they're not allowed to sin or cross that line of sin with your compliance with that. So husbands likewise. Oh, wait. In the same manner. Likewise means this is consistent. It's going to keep moving forward. Now, we all thought we were off the hook by picking on wives. But wives... Um, you have a beautiful opportunity to minister to your husband. Husbands, you have the same opportunity. Verse 7. Husbands, we're going to end on verse 7, by the way, if you're thinking we're going to get through the whole chapter and you're terrified of how long we're going to go. <laughs> verse 7 is the last of these uh, just conditions. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, the wives, with understanding. Give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Wow. So you give fear to God, you give love to your brother, you give honor to the, everyone else. 
in love and honor, you can apply that in both directions. I can love other people in the brotherhood, but I can expect that love comes back. I can fear my Lord, but I don't expect that the Lord's going to fear me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But with love and honor, I can expect that it goes two ways. Husbands, it goes two ways. Don't expect your wife to be wanting to submit to you if you're an ungodly man and you're not doing what you're told to do. Godly marriages, the wife does what she does, the husband does what he does, and it's super easy to be submissive and to be honoring. It goes both, it's really reciprocal. Like, honestly, when my wife submits to me, I, I then take my job a lot more seriously than I used to. And in the same sense, the more I take my job seriously, it's a lot easier to say, I trust you because I'm trustworthy. But the dance has to start somewhere in a marriage. So Peter goes right to the husband. Same principle, likewise. The authority structure here, though, isn't flipped, but there's still obligations. So a governor has obligations. A boss has obligations. A husband in the home has obligations. Ephesians 5. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Women like to be loved. It's a godly principle. He's wired it into us. And I would argue there are differences between men and women that can be generalized. So a godly husband certainly helps the idea of trusting or submitting to him because he is serving and honoring God with all his heart, mind, and soul. To dwell with them. That doesn't, and again, Peter, I think, is being really careful with his words because he's dealing with the same issues of men and women that we deal with today. Our societies aren't that different. So he's being very cautious with his words. Dwell with them, not over them, not as their boss, not as a distant harem chamber, keeping of many, like, you dwell with them, you sleep in the same bed with them, you live with them, you're partners with them. You don't keep a mistress, you have one wife, you have one household, you dwell. The word dwell there is to live or abide with or alongside. Dwell in your marriage. Stay there. Households are judged or blessed as a household. And in this case, like, it's typically husbands that are head of household. But in Joshua 6.25, we saw Rahab doing the right thing for the kingdom. Her whole household, including her father, are blessed by her actions. So God doesn't seem to have the same hang-ups that we do about this. Like, when you have somebody in a household that's being godly, and they're dwelling with these other people, the people they're dwelling with will be blessed by that. Husbands, dwell with your wives. It says, with understanding. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to be, you know, this is something a sexist might say. Sometimes my wife really confuses me. And I just got to be really honest with you. And I've heard other husbands say the same thing. I don't understand how these women think. I don't get it. But the command of the Bible is we're supposed to dwell with them with understanding. The expectation is not that we understand women. The understanding is that we learn to understand women. That's a task. It needs to take time in our calendar schedule some understanding my wife time in your life. I have to figure this out. I found the best way I can understand my wife is if I give her my time. Because if I give her my time, she just tells me. But if I'm too busy to give her my time, our marriage starts to go like this. And we stray. And, and Satan loves that. He'll put a wedge in that gap and pound it. And pound it hard. I can't even see Bonnie's face because of that monitor right there. And I'm curious what her look is when I say these things. Yeah. Give honor to the wife. If you honor something, you spend time with it. And notice that our political leaders and our bosses, there's no mention that they're obligated to honor us. But Peter's very specific with husbands. You are obligated to honor your wife. It is really easy to be your wife if you're honoring them. But a husband that doesn't honor her, his wife, husband that's got his eyes looking everywhere in a shopping mall, 
That's not honoring to your wife. A husband who cares more about his job than his marriage, that's not honoring your wife. A husband that's so prideful about the promotions and the businesses they're operating and the things they're doing in the world, that's not honoring to your wife because she helped you get there, darn it. Lift her up and elevate her. God expects men to use that authority they've been given to submit themselves to him. And God expects that authority be, to be used in this way. Verse 7, dwell, understand, and honor. So if men aren't doing that, it is torture to live in a house with you. But if they're doing that, there's a blessing in it. Same way with wives doing what they're called to do. There's an amazing blessing if you just do it the way God asked you to do it. Even if it's against your flesh and against everything you feel. Peter's saying this, and he's saying it, and it's as countercultural in the Roman Empire as it is today in our culture. This is not something the rest of the world will, will understand even, right? In fact, you can, uh, you know, you can deal with ungodly men at, 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 at work, and I've, I've heard guys brag about what they do to their wives to torture them. You know, one guy, I remember, his wife didn't like that he kept buying toys, so he went online and bought a $1,000 R2-D2 full size. Why did he buy the R2-D2? To torture his wife. That is not what the Bible says to do, yet you find people that are not serving the Lord that do things that are horrible. And you think, what do you think is going to happen at home? How do you think your night's going to go when R2-D2 shows up? This is not what toys should do in your life. They're not tools for you to show your dominance or your headship. That's absolutely a, a thing. So I think when Peter's writing this, he's writing it and it's just as unnatural for the ungodly as it should be natural for the godly. I don't want my wife to think I'm wasting money on R2-D2s. What a horrible way to live my evening. I want my wife to say, I'm so glad you're home. I want a hug. I want her to say, let's talk about your day and let's go through what happened. I want to share it so that I can understand what happened in her day and what went. And those are good days where our marriage does the opposite. It zippers together. And suddenly we're going through life as one. And we're not perfect. Some of you have accused us of the being imperfect, but we're not perfect. And I'm going to tell you it takes work to have a healthy marriage. And in the flesh, if you just ignore it and let it go, it'll fall apart because Satan loves to rip up marriages. Marriages are supposed to be an image of what Christ is for the church. <coughs> And in the same sense as husbands, go read Proverbs 31 and replace women with the church and take it as your own personal thing. We should be behaving towards our wives like God behaves towards us. And we should be working and we should be taking time with it. We should be investing in it. So he says the weaker vessel, another term that people get really caught up on. What's a weaker vessel? It's a unique term. It is weak literally in that it is without physical strength. It is the vessel that breaks easier. The word is skuyos. I just like the word skuyos. Uh, a, a vessel, a skuyos, is a household container that holds something. What's interesting here is if women are weaker, that might imply that men are stronger, but a vessel is an image for both. There are both weak and strong vessels. The point isn't the vessel, it's what it contains. Don't you want to know what the vessel contains? If... If the vessel contains something that is equally honored and loved and blessed, then it doesn't matter how strong the vessel is. But I, I can say this. I think that when the marriage isn't tended to, it's the woman that first gets worked up about it. She's the one that suffers first, which is why you have a, a lot of heartless guys that watch their women f flail about in emotional pain 
and don't do anything about it. I think men can go a longer amount of time without love and respect and honor in their marriage because they can focus on other things a little easier. But women don't seem to be able to do that as much. Again, I'm, I'm making generalizations here. There's always exceptions to those generalizations. But the idea here of a vessel isn't the, the object that it's in because what's in the vessel is equally valued. Peter says that. Being heirs together. Our souls are heirs to the kingdom of God. And frankly, this flesh... This vessel that we're in goes away when Christ comes back. This fleshly vessel that's under the curse of an Adam and Eve are, is the one thing we shed when we become transformed beings under Christ. Our souls are precious in God's sight, equally precious in God's sight. Our vessels don't matter much to God. So this is the grace of, of the grace of life. What's important here in a spiritual sense is that both the husband and the wife are given new life in Christ. Physically, there might be differences. Spiritually, they're both blessed with the life that comes from the grace of Jesus Christ. You're equally valuable to Christ. You have different challenges in life. And then I think Peter adds the reason to do it. And his other reasons to do it are because God's watching you. You know, we've seen that in this chapter, because this pleases God. But look at how he changes that here. That your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands and wives, husbands especially, this is addressed to, the kindness you show to your wife affects your spiritual life. God's not going to listen to a jerk husband. Don't expect a lot of blessing. Don't expect blessing at work. Don't expect blessing at home. Don't expect blessing with your children. Don't expect it in any area of your life if you're not honoring your wife. You will start to feel the withdrawal of God in your life. And that's a horrible feeling. If you thirst and hunger for righteousness and you find that that source of spiritual energy is not responding to you anymore, God's giving you an arid wilderness period because he wants you to change and turn around. So that honoring of your wife will affect your prayer life. There's a dwelling and understanding and honor giving and co-heirship of a husband that is God's will. And if men that can't husband a wife, God reserves the right to ignore them. And I think this is interesting. God doesn't have to give you grace. God can put you through trials and tests to renew what, you're, what, what it looks like. God has the husband's heart, so he needs husbands to look like him so that people see what a husband's hearts look like. Uh, amazingly, tonight we're doing Hosea 2. If you look at Hosea 2 verse 16, it says, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. The point of marriage is not that women call their husband master. It's that they call them husband. You're the person that takes care of me. And I think that that's such a beautiful thought. But we live in those days when our prayers being answered or not answered. Hosea was speaking of a day says the Lord that you will call me husband and no longer call me master. He's looking forward to a day where husbands don't have to be masters and he doesn't have to be our master. We simply have a loving relationship. And that service is something that's beautiful and ordained by God. So I look forward to that day. So God orders and has an authority structure he does within marriage. The point of that structure is a fence around the flock. It is something that gives us peace because we can be safe in a healthy marriage. We can be blessed in a healthy marriage. Our marriage can be a ministry to all the unmarried that we live with. If one or the other obeys what Peter is saying on either side of this coin, the marriage just gets easier and it grows closer together. 
Women can do their part and it changes the men. Men can do their part, it changes the husband. But God's ordained this order. And the goal of this order isn't a master-servant relationship. It's a husband and flock relationship. And he says the same thing about the church. He doesn't want the church to obey him because we're scared of him. He wants the church to obey him because we're scared of losing his blessing. And we fear the loss of God because we love him. And that's the relationship he wants. So he wants marriages to look the same. Submitting wives are worthy of being honored and they're easy to understand. Honoring husbands are worthy of obedience and submission and they're easy to trust. And that when that happens, we look a lot more like our relationship with God. Summary of Peter so far. Chapter 1 says to gird up. He can hear the change in tone. Chapter 2 says to be holy. Chapter 3 says honor, love, and fear. Verse 217, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Chapter 3 has a, has, has a lot of submitting that has to do with honor across areas of our life. Um, so if you are following Peter's advice, if you are a Christian living in a Gentile world, these are ways that we prepare ourselves for trial. I think healthy marriages, healthy workplaces, healthy relationships to our government, they actually get us ready for persecution too because they create a defense network for us that goes from the home to our community to our nation. And if Christians are all doing their part within that system, we then become protected from persecution not just to avoid it altogether, but that we can endure it and take it on. So an amazing thing, an amazing study. Peter just keeps being honest and direct. Again, Peter's definitely, Peter and James are some of those on-the-nose people, and they don't hold back, and they don't um, withdraw or condition things unless they're important to condition. So um, I hope you're blessed by what Peter's talking about. I have been. It's made me think a lot about my marriage this week. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your blessing and your kindness. Lord, we know that you are a God of order. You've given us ways to avoid log jams in our life. Um, you've given us ways to deal with our boss, to deal with our country, to deal with our marriages. Um, Lord, I just pray that we can be a pleasing to you in all regards. Um, Lord, we want anything in this world to go away if it means losing you. So help us, Lord, to hold loosely to the things of this world and cling tightly to you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you in all regards. Um, Lord, help every marriage in this room and future marriage in this room. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Lord, for the single people in this room, help us to keep our eyes on you, um, that we serve you either way. Um, and Lord, we're, we're going to accept what you have because you are our good shepherd. Um, we trust that you're husbanding our lives with good advice and wise counsel. Uh, so Lord, help us to, to submit to you and see if we'll be blessed by that and help us to be faithful in our actions. Help us to run away from sin and pursue you in all regards. In Jesus' name, bless this word to our hearts. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.